0: W-B-N-E. Hello, and welcome to episode 187, all about the Lord of the Rings, Appendix F, being the 187th part of That's What I'm Talking About. my name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time. And this week we are finishing our dive into the Lord of the Rings appendices with Appendix F. And today I am joined by no one except you listening wherever you're listening to. Yep, it's just me this week. There were some scheduling issues this past week, not a problem because we're just going to we're going to have fun with this last little bit of the appendices. I've been enjoying it actually. It's been quite a surprise for me, really. I thought that the appendices were going to be really boring and I I mean, obviously I think coming off of the Silmarillion, I think I was really expecting it to be just more dry and dense Tolkien stuff, but I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, Even some of the more specific stuff like the pronunciations and the written language and everything. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm glad that I circled back to finally dive into the appendices and give them the time and attention that I probably wouldn't have given them If I was doing them immediately after finishing the books for the first time, um, I probably just would have tried to rush through them so that I could get to the movie. So I'm glad that I got to spend some time with it. And I think I was also able to appreciate a lot more of it because I had the context of The Hobbit and The Silmarillion. So I think I just would have been, I I would have been really clueless about like, what is half of this even talking about? This is so confusing. So it worked out the way it worked out and I'm glad it did. Um, So yeah, we will dive into Appendix F and I'm actually going to do a read along. We're going to do like a live, you're going to hear my first thoughts uh, and reactions to this final appendix. And I don't know if it's technically legal for me to be reading this, (sighs) <laughs> in full on the podcast. But um yeah, if this will be a more um, I don't know, laid back episode if you are on a road trip or you're just washing dishes or doing chores or something around the house. Um think of this as a um really terrible audiobook. Yeah, yeah, I'll say that. So I will read Appendix F um aloud, and then every now and then I might jump in. Why did I say might? You know, I will jump in with my thoughts, might voice some questions, might say, oh, okay, I think, you know, the main takeaway here is X, Y, Z, whatever. But yeah, let's, let's get into it. So again, this is Appendix F. This is the last of the appendices, unless you really want to go into the, uh, the index, um, where you can find that Saruman was mentioned on page 47, 250 to 255. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna read out the entire index, but yeah, this is the last of it. Um, it is the languages and peoples of the Third Age. So we're finally diving into those parts of the the timeline that, um, that were not as touched upon in the Silmarillion and that the appendices have really gone into a, a lot more in depth. And again, a reminder that the Second Age ended slash the beginning of the Third Age started with Sauron's, uh, I guess we'll say like first official downfall, where there was that big battle with Elendil and Isildur, and Elendil was killed and Isildur cut the ring off of Sauron and took it for his own. And Sauron, you know, went into hiding for however many years and then eventually grew into power and came back. And then, you know, the Lord of the Rings transpired. So that's the third age. Again, if you're trying to orient yourself, um, I know it's super easy to confuse all of the different (laughs) timelines and events and everything that happens here. All right. So section one, The language represented in this history by English was the Westron or common speech of the Westlands of Middle-earth in the Third Age. In the course of that age, it had become the native language of nearly all the speaking peoples, save the elves, who dwelt within the bounds of the old kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor. And that is along all... Is this one sentence? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That is along all the coasts from Umbar northward to the Bay of Fora and, Shell. and in, okay, this is just a bunch of geography stuff. It also spread north up the Anduin, occupying the lands west of the river and east of the mountains as far as the Gladden Fields. Where are Gladden Fields? I'm going to look that up for us. Oh, okay. Okay, Gladden Fields is actually where the ring was lost by Isildur and where it was found by Deagle. I mean in the in the river obviously. Oh, okay, interesting. I didn't know. I don't think I realized that the ring was lost and found in the same place. Especially if it was found in a river, I feel like wouldn't the current have like taken it away? Then again, I guess um, the ring has a mind of its own and if it wants to stay in one place, I guess it can stay in one place, so. Okay, so that is where, so that is Gladden Fields. It is in between, if you're curious and you wanna look at it on a map yourself, it is in between the Misty Mountains and Mirkwood and above Lorien. Okay, cool, so the more you know, cool. We're four sentences in. I guess you're getting a really good insight into what my reading process has been like as I've been doing this podcast where I read like I read one and a half sentences and I think is this all one sentence and then I continue reading and I go oh what's gladden fields where is that oh this is just a bunch of geography geography stuff I'm gonna gloss over it so (laughs) this is just a really intimate look at the inside of my brain okay continuing on. At the time of the War of the Ring, at the end of the age, these were still its bounds as a native tongue. though large parts of Eriador were now deserted, and few men dwelt on the shores of the Anduin between the Gladden and Rauros. I remember that was a, um, I'm pretty sure that those are waterfalls. I'm pretty sure that's the waterfall, in fact, that they yeeted Boromir's body over. Um, And I still have trouble pronouncing it. Okay, cool. A few of the ancient wild men still lurked in the Druidan forest in Honorian, and in the hills of Dunland a remnant lingered of an old people, the former inhabitants of much of Gondor. These clung to their own languages. While in the plains of Rohan there still dwelt now a northern people, the Rohirrim, who had come into the land some 500 years earlier but the westron was used as a second language of intercourse by all those who still retained a speech of their own even by the elves not only in arnor and gondor but throughout the vales of anduin and eastward to the further eaves of Mirkwood. even among the wildmen and the dunlingdings there's that great word again dunlingdings um i am rem- a uh, reminder there was that uh like councilman in early Rohan history, who was really shady and, oh, that's right, that's who Helm Hammerhand punched to death with a single uppercut. Um, He was a (laughs) Dunling-ding. Anyway, the Dunling, uh, even among the wild men and the Dunling-dings who shunned other folk, there were some that could speak it, though brokenly. Okay, so Westron is the common speech of the Westlands of Middle-earth. So this is what, um, I guess the equivalent of English, you know, Um, English is a very uh, like common denominator kind of a language around the world. I remember one time when I was studying abroad, we were, which is such a gross sentence to say, by the way, like there's no way to, (laughs) I studied abroad, whatever. I was in Brussels. We were getting waffles because of course you have to get waffles when you're in Belgium. Anyway, and the waffle maker, uh, the guy who owned the store, um, another customer came up and he started speaking in either like German or French or something. And the the owner of the store didn't know that language. And so they both defaulted to English. And that was really interesting for us that it was like, oh, they don't know each other's languages, but they both know English. So anyway, okay. So that's kind of like Westron over here. Also, side note, isn't Westeros the land in Game of Thrones? I mean, I know George R.R. Martin took a lot of inspiration from Jolkin R.R. Tolkien. Okay. Anyway, continuing on to the Elves section of the Elves. The elves, far back in the elder days, became divided into two main branches: the West Elves, the Eldar, and the East Elves. Of the latter kind were most of the elven folk of Mirkwood and Lorien, but their languages do not appear in this history, in which all the elvish names and words are of Eldarin form. Of the Eldarin tongues, two are found in this book: the High Elven or Quenya, and the Grey Elven or Sindarin. Sindarin, Sindarin. The High Elven was an ancient tongue of Eldamar beyond the sea, the first to be recorded in writing. It was no longer a birth tongue, but had become, as it were, an Elven Latin, still used for ceremony and for high matters of lore and song by the High Elves, who had returned in exile to Middle-earth at the end of the First Age. Okay, so exactly like I was saying um, in last week's episode about the pronunciations and the letters that it seems uh, a lot of elven is kind of like Latin, where it's, it's not really spoken today. De- you know, it's not spoken today, it's a dead language, but a lot of our words today have Latin roots. So same with Quenya here. The Grey Elven was an origin akin to Quenya, for it was the language of those Eldar who, coming to the shores of Middle-earth, had not passed over the sea, but had lingered on the coasts in the country of Beleriand. There, thingle gray Greycloak of Doriath, his last name is Greycloak. <laughs> I mean, I no one in this book, no one in this these stories, except for I guess the Hobbits, really have like last names. You know, they're more uh, you know, like Thorn Oakenshield. He was Oakenshield because of like that that incident. They get like little nicknames and monikers, Hammerhand. Um, I don't think I knew that it was Thingol Greycloak. Their Thingol Greycloak of Doriath was their king. And in the long twilight, their tongue had changed with the changefulness, what changed with the changefulness of mortal lands and had become far estranged from the speech of the Eldar from beyond the sea. Okay, so that makes sense. As they are separated from the other elves who went on to Valinor, their languages change. Makes sense. I think we, we already know a lot of this, I feel like. The exiles dwelling among the more numerous Grey Elves had adopted the Sindarin for daily use, and hence it was the tongue of all those Elves and Elf Lords that appear in this history. For these were all of Eldaran race, even where the folk that they ruled were of the lesser kindreds. Noblest of all was the Lady Galadriel in the royal house of Finarfin and sister of Finrod Felagund, king of Nargothrond. In the hearts of the exiles, the yearning for the sea was an unquiet, never to be stilled. In the hearts of the gray elves, it slumbered. But once awakened, it could not be appeased. Okay, cool. So that was just kind of a brief (laughs) summary of a lot of stuff we already know about the elves from the Silmarillion. Okay, now on to men. Gotta love them, men. All right. (laughs) The Westron was a mannish speech. Mannish here is capitalized. (laughs) M-A-N-N-I-S-H. The Westron was a mannish speech, though enriched and softened under elvish influence. Man, those elves. Influence and everything, am I right? It was in origin the language of those whom the Eldar called the Atani or Edine, fathers of men, being especially the people of the three houses of the elf friends who came west into Beleriand in the first age and aided the Eldar in the war of the great jewels against the dark power of the north. Okay, so it sounds like Westron has its roots going back to Numenor. Makes sense that, you know, the men kind of being, I don't know, the more common race, Uh, Westron is the common speech, that it would have roots going back to the Edine and those men that helped the elves. After the overthrow of the Dark Power, in which Beleriand was for the most part drowned or broken, it was granted as a reward to the Elfrinds that they also, as the Eldar, might pass west over the sea. But since the Undying Realm was forbidden to them, a great isle was set apart for them, most westerly of all mortal lands. The name of that isle was Numenor. What a surprise, Um, in parentheses, Westerness, which again is very similar to Westeros um, or Westeros. I I hope I'm not making that up, that that's the Game of Thrones land. Most of the elf friends, therefore, departed and dwelt in Numenor, and there they became great and powerful mariners of renown and lords of many ships. They were fair face and tall, and the span of their lives was thrice that of men of Middle-earth. I love that it always mentions you got to know that the Numenorians were tall. These were the Numenorians, the kings of men, whom the elves called the Dunedain. The Dunedain alone of all races of men knew and spoke an elvish tongue, for their forefathers had learned the Sindarin tongue, and this they handed on to their children as a matter of lore, changing little with the passing of the years. And their men of wisdom learned also the high elven Quenya and esteemed it above all other tongues. And in it they made names for many places of fame and reverence and for many men of royalty and great renown. And then here's a footnote specifically about that. Quenya, for example, are names Numenor and Elendi, Isildur and Anarion, and all the royal names of Gondor, including Elisar, Elfstone. Most of the names of the other men and women of the Dúnedain, such as Aragorn, Denethor, Gilraen, are of Sindarin form being often the names of elves or men remembered in the songs and histories of the first age, as baron and huron. Some few are of mixed forms, like Boromir. Ugh, Boromir. But the native speech of the Numenorians remained for the most part their ancestral manish tongue, the Aduniac, okay, sure, let's go with that, um, the Aduniac, and to this, in the latter days of their pride, their kings and lords returned, abandoning the elven speech, save only those that held still to their ancient friendship with the Eldar. In the years of their power, the Numenorians had maintained many forts and havens upon the western coasts of Middle-earth for the help of their ships, and one of the chief of these was at Pelargir, near the mouths of Anduin. There Aduniac was spoken, and mingled with many words of the languages of lesser men, it became a common speech that spread, thence, along the coasts among all that had dealings with westerness. After the downfall of Numenor, Elendil led the survivors of the Elfrans back to the northwestern shores of Middle-earth. There, many already dwelt who were in whole or part of Numenor in blood, but few of them remembered the Elvish speech. All told, the Dúnedain were thus, from the beginning, far fewer in number than the lesser men, among whom they dwelt and whom they ruled being lords of long life and great power and wisdom. They used, therefore, the common speech in their dealing with other folk and in the government of their wide realms. But they enlarged the language and enriched it with many words drawn from elven tongues. I don't know. It's giving, like, um class divide here of, like, the Numenorians coming over, picturing, viewing all of these other people as lesser because they don't, they, they don't speak anything uh, Elvish or they don't have any Elvish influences. And then wanting to like expand and improve upon that by adding in what they know and what they can show off. Because remember, they are God's chosen people because they decided to follow and listen to the Elves. Granted, you can't really say much about the other Numenorians, because they're all at the bottom of the ocean. So continuing on. <laughs> In the days of the Numenorean kings, this ennobled Westron speech spread far and wide, even among their enemies, and it became used more and more by the Dúnedain themselves, so that at the time of the War of the Ring, the elven tongue was known to only a small part of the people of Gondor, and spoken daily by fewer. These dwelt mostly in Minas Tirith and the townlands adjacent, and in the land of the tributary princes of Dol Amroth. Yet the names of nearly all places and persons in the realm of Gondor were of elvish form and meaning. A few were of forgotten origin and descended doubtless from the days before the ships of the Numenorian sailed to sea. Among these were Umbar, Amak, and Eric. Remember Eric? (laughs) It's spelled E R E C H, but I just think of Eric like Eric Foreman from that 70s show. Anyway. And the mountain names Island and Riman, Forlong was also a name of the same sort. So this kind of feels to me like Tolkien explaining some names that he maybe had just come up with and later realized that it didn't fit into certain linguistic patterns with some of the rest of the names and so he's like yeah i don't know sometimes uh, not all the names fit in uh, had had elvish names and meanings because it was it was before the Numenorians set sail and so there were different languages uh there were different languages used around here then most of the men of the northern regions of the westlands were descended from the Edine of the first age or from their close kin their languages were therefore related to the Aduniac, and some still preserve a likeness to the common speech. Of this kind were the peoples of the upper vales of Anduin, the Beornings, and the woodmen of western Mirkwood, and further north and east of the men of the Long Lake and of Dale. Hey, we know them! Bard! All hail King Bard. From the lands between the Gladden and the Karak came the folk that were known in Gondor as the Rohirrim, Master of Horses. They still spoke their ancestral tongue and gave new names in it to nearly all of the places in their new country, and they called themselves the Aorlings or the Men of the Rydermark. But the lords of that people used the common speech freely and spoke it nobly after the manner of their allies in Gondor. For in Gondor, whence it came, the Westron kept still a more gracious and antique style." Again, kind of like the shade being thrown at, at like Rohan for like using this language that's not their own, and referring to the language spoken by Gondor as gracious and antique style, like keeping in with tradition. Just seeing those, like, also I want to know more about um about the, the the language of that the Rohirrim speak because we only call it like Rohan. In the Rohirrim, because that's what the Westron speech for it is. But, you know, they called themselves the Eorling, the Aorlings. So what is the land of Rohan called <laughs> in their own tongue, you know? Holy alien was the speech of the wild men of Druiden Forest. Alien too, or remotely akin, was the language of the Dunlingdings. <laughs> they were a remnant of the people that had dwelt in the vales of the White Mountains in ages past. The dead men of Dunharrow were of their kin, but in the dark years others had removed to the southern dales of the Misty Mountains, and thence some had passed into the empty lands as far north as the Barrow Downs. From them came the men of Bree, but long before these had become subjects of the north kingdom of Arnor and had taken up in the Westron Tongue. Only in Dunland did men of this race hold to their old speech and manners, a secret folk unfriendly to the Dunedain Hating the Rohirrim again. I think it's interesting that he's describing this trait of like keeping their like la- keeping their own language and like staying with those roots and ascribing it to people who don't like our good guys. You know, of their language, nothing appears in this book. <laughs> Surprise! Save the name Forgoil, which they gave to the Rohirrim. Meaning straw heads, it is said. Dunland and Dunlingding are the names that the Rohirrim gave to them because they were swarthy and dark haired. There is thus no connection between the word Dun in these names and the gray elven word Dune, meaning west. So there's no connection between like Dunadine and Dunland and Dunlingding. <laughs> Okay, moving on. So we don't like those people. Their language isn't spoken of, so it doesn't matter. Moving on to our favorite people, the Hobbits. The Hobbits of the Shire and of Bree had at this time for probably a thousand years adopted the common speech. They used it in their own manner freely and carelessly, though the more learned among them had still at their command a more formal language when occasion required. So the more intelligent scholar, the more scholarly people among them. There is no record of any language peculiar to hobbits. In ancient days, they seem always to have used the languages of men near whom or among whom they lived. Thus, they quickly adopted the common speech after they entered Eriador, and by the time of their settlement at Bree, they had already begun to forget their former tongue. This was evidently a Manish language of the Upper Anduin, akin to that of the Rohirrim though the southern stores appear to have adopted a language related to the dish before they came north into the Shire. Of these things in the time of Frodo, there were still some traces left in local words and names, many of which closely resembled those found in Dale or in Rohan. Most notable were the names of days, months, and seasons. Several other words of the same sort, such as Mavum and smeal Sm- S-M-I-A-L? Smile? Like it's smile-like vial, like a vial of potion, uh, due to several other words of the same sort, were also still in common use, while more were preserved in the place names of Bree and the Shire. The personal names of the hobbits were also peculiar, and many had come down from ancient days. Hobbit was the name usually applied by the Shire folk to all their kind. Men called them halflings and the elves periannath. The origin of the word hobbit was by most forgotten. It seems, however, to have been at first a name given to the Harfoots by the Falahides and Stores, and to be a worn down form of a word preserved more fully in Rohan, Halbutla, hole builder. I think that's really interesting that he has this little thing about the origin of the word hobbit. Because I'm pretty sure that's um there have been a couple different stories of the the like origin of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and how Tolkien decided to first start writing everything. And one of those stories, I believe, is that one day he was grading papers and he wrote down the word Hobbit. It just occurred to him, and he wrote down the word Hobbit and was like, "hmm. I think I'll, re- I'll revisit that word <laughs> later. I, w- I want to build an entire complex <laughs> world and language around the single word hobbit. Um, don't come at me if that is wrong, but I think it's cute that Tolkien kind of, I don't know, like a little nod to himself. The origin of the word hobbit was by most forgotten because he he himself just kind of, you know, it just came out of nowhere to him. So... How do you find the origin of something that just occurs to you? Ooh, here we go. Oh my God, this is so exciting. Okay, okay. Of other races, ints. Oh my God, guys. We're going to hear about the ints and intish. <laughs> okay. The most ancient people surviving in the Third Age were the Onondrim or en- en- Enid, <laughs> E N Y D, Int. Was the form of their name in the language of Rohan. That's so interesting that some of the words, like some of the uh, the ways that we call places or or people or whatever in Lord of the Rings, sometimes it's the Westron word, it's whatever Gondor would have called it. A lot of times it like just defaults to whatever the elves would have called it. Um, and then here it's Int, which is a Rohan word. So interesting. Anyway. They were known to the Eldar in ancient days, and to the Eldar indeed the Ents ascribed not their own language, but the desire for speech. The language that they had made was unlike all others slow, sonorous, agglomerated, repetitive, indeed long winded, formed of a multiplicity of vowel shades and distinctions of tone and quality which even the masters of the Eldar had not attempted to represent in writing they used it only among themselves but they had no need to keep it secret for no others could learn it i think that's um i think that's something that treebeard tells to to merry pippin he's like oh well i could te- teach you entish but um it would take you so long to even learn how to say hello oh my god i just love just such a wonderful part of of the ents oh man i love them okay Ints were, however, themselves skilled in tongues, learning them swiftly and never forgetting them, but they preferred the languages of the Eldar and loved best the ancient high elven tongue. The strange words and names that the hobbits record as used by Treebeard and other ints are thus elvish, or fragments of elf speech strung together in int fashion. Okay, wait, let me parse that out. Okay, the strange words and names that the hobbits record as used by Treebeard and other Ents are thus Elvish, or fragments of Elf speech strung together in Elf fashion. Hmm? Okay, whatever. Some are Quenya as... Oh, no, I'm not reading these out. (sighs) This must be like the the Ents' names in Intish, because these are... Okay. Torellomia Tumbalemorna. Tumba Tarea Lomeanor, which may be rendered forest, many shadowed deep valley black, deep valley forested, gloomy land. <laughs> gloomy land. And by which tree beard meant more or less, there is a black shadow in the deep dales of the forest. Some are Sundaran as Fangorn, beard of tree, or Thimbrethil, slender beach. Okay, so it seems like when they were writing down the events of Mary and Pippin and the Ents*, they did rough translations of what the broken Elvish would have been, and what that would have translated to in English. So, and like what? Um, so does that mean? Does that imply that um, Mary and Pippin* knew Elvish? No, that can't be what it means, because then, no, th- I think I've misinterpreted this. Okay, anyway. Okay, orcs and the black speech. Orc is the form of the name that other races had for this foul people, as it was used in the language of Rohan. In Sindarin, it was orc, O-R-C-H. Related, no doubt, was the word uruk of the black speech, though this was applied as a rule only to the great soldier orcs that at this time issued from Mordor and Isengard. The lesser kinds were called, especially by the Orokai, Snaga, meaning slave. Mmm, love that. Great. The orcs were first bred by the dark power of the north in the elder days. It is said that they had no language of their own, but took what they could of other tongues and perverted it to their own liking. Yet they made only brutal jargons, scarcely sufficient even for their own needs, unless it were for curses and abuse. And these creatures, being filled with malice, hating even their own kind, quickly developed as many barbarous dialects as there were groups or settlements of their race. So that their orcish speech was of little use to them in intercourse between different tribes. That's actually re- that's super interesting because that means like there's less um there's less of an ability to connect with other tribes of orcs, and it's creating more of this idea of like othering even your own people amongst them. So it was that in the Third Age, orcs used for communication between breed and breed the Westron tongue, and many indeed of the older tribes, such as those that still lingered in the North and in the Misty Mountains, had long used the Westron as their native language, though in such a fashion as to make it hardly less unlovely than orcish. In this jargon, Tark, man of Gondor, was a debased form of Tarkil, a quenya word used in Westron for one of Numenorean descent. It is said that the Black Speech was devised by Sauron in the Dark Years, and that he had desired to make it the language of all those that served him, but he failed in that power. From the Black Speech, however, were derived many of the words that were in the Third Age widespread among the orcs, such as gash, fire. But after the first overthrow of Sauron, this language in its ancient form was forgotten by all but Nazgul, when Sauron rose again, it became once more the language of barad and the captains of Mordor. The inscription on the ring was in the ancient black speech, while the curse of the Mordor orc on page 435 was in the more debased form used by the soldiers of the Dark Tower, of whom Grishnak was the captain. Sharku in that tongue means old man. Two things here. Um... <laughs> I like that he says the curse used on page 435, like I'm going to remember whatever that orc said. And like I read that part thinking, hmm, interesting, it doesn't seem to line up with the black speech used uh, in the ring. Okay, and then two, Sharku, meaning old man, lines up with uh, Saruman being referred to as Sharky. In, uh, in the shot when we get to the scouring of the Shire and we find out that like he's behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings. Okay, trolls. Troll in the dungeon! Troll in the dungeon! Troll has been used to translate the Sindarin torog. In their beginning far back in the twilight of the elder days, these were creatures of dull and lumpish nature and had no more language than beasts. But Sauron had made use of them, teaching them what little they could learn and increasing their wits with wickedness. Trolls, therefore, took such language as they could master from the orcs. And in the Westlands, the stone trolls spoke a debased form of the common speech. Wait a minute. Oh, man, I just saw something on the page that I'm going to rant about in a minute. Okay. But at the end of the Third Age, a troll race not before seen appeared in southern Mirkwood and in the mountain borders of Mordor olog they were called, in the Black Speech, that Sauron bred them none doubted, though from what stock was not known. Some held that they were not trolls, but giant orcs. But the Ologhai were in fashion of body and mind quite unlike even the largest of orc kind, whom they far surpassed in size and power. Trolls they were, but filled with the evil will of their master, a fell race, strong, agile, fierce, and cunning, but harder than stone. Unlike the older race of the twilight, they could endure the sun so long as the will of Sauron held sway over them. They spoke little and the only tongue that they knew was the black speech of Barad-dor. Okay, so these trolls he's describing that Sauron later bred doesn't sound like the trolls that uh, Bilbo and the dwarves would have encountered in The Hobbit. Because those ones turned to stone when the sun rose up and these trolls were bred to survive the sun, just like uh, the uruk Okay, so this is the part that <laughs> makes me a little angry. Because so, so going through these languages, we start off with the elves, God's favorite child, you know, then we go to the men, then hobbits, and then it says of other races and we do the Ents, we do the Orcs, we do Trolls, and then we come to the Dwarves? Are you kidding me? The disrespect that Tolkien has for his own race of people that he created, and who, by the way, are, I think, now that like I've learned everything I've learned, I think the Dwarves are so much cooler. They, they, are, they are amazing. And Tolkien just like could not care. The dwarves are a race apart. I don't know what that means. What do you mean by that, Tolkien? That that like you can't even consider them a race because of, maybe he means because of like the way that they were created, that they weren't originally part of quote unquote the plan, you know, that Owlay created them behind Louvatar's back. I don't know. Okay, anyway. Of their strange beginning and why they are both like and unlike elves and men, the Silmarillion tells. But of this tale, the lesser elves of Middle Earth had no knowledge, while the tales of later men are confused with memories of other races. What? I don't know what that means, but of this tale, the lesser elves of Middle Earth had no knowledge? Okay, I see what it's saying there. The elves of Middle Earth had no idea how the dwarves came to be, and men also didn't know, but they were hearing conflict, they were hearing stories that were like confusing origins of different peoples. Okay, I think I got that. This is what it's like when I read it, when I read Tolkien. It takes my brain way too long to figure it out. Okay. They are a tough, thrawn race for the most part, secretive, laborious, retentive of the memory of injuries and of benefits, lovers of stone, of gems, of things that take shape under the hands of the craftsmen rather than the things that live by their own life. But they are not evil by nature, and few ever served the enemy of free will whatever the tales of men may have alleged. For men of old lusted after their wealth and the work of their hands, and there has been enmity between the races. But in the third age, close friendship still was found in many places between men and dwarves. And it was according to the nature of the dwarves that traveling and laboring and trading about the lands, as they did after the destruction of their ancient mansions, they should use the languages of men among whom they dwelt. Yet in secret, a secret which unlike the elves, they did not willingly unlock even to their friends. What a, damn, Tolkien, you're just so mean to them. Like, no, they've had, the dwarves have had. Okay, let me finish this. Let, let, let me start that over again before my rage comes out again. Okay. Yet in secret a secret which unlike the elves they did not willingly unlock even to their friends they used their own strange tongue changed little by the years for it had become a tongue of lore rather than a cradle speech and they tended it and guarded it as a treasure of the past okay see tolkien that's exactly like you you wrote it right there a treasure of the past so you understand that they have lost so much in their past And their language is like the one thing that can't be taken from them. So I I understand why the dwarves would not want to share it with other people. They're like, no, this is something that like is widely respected within our culture. It's a way of us being able to continue to find community and connection with each other, even though we've been torn apart and we are a wandering people. Language is the last thing we have that can connect all of us still. And no, we're not going to teach it to you, elf boy. (laughs) Oh my God. He didn't like the way he said, which unlike the elves, like, okay, we get it. The elves wanted everyone. The elves conquered people. Let's just put it that way. The elves conquered people, and and he's fr- how do we know that the elves didn't force people to use their languages, you know? The way that we're reading this, we're like, oh, okay, so people just kind of willingly adapted the elvish language or influenced their existing language. How do we know? We don't know. The elves are, what do they say? The winners are the ones who write the history? God, anyway, okay. <laughs> oh, man. Few of other race had succeeded in learning it. In this history, it appears only in such place names as Gimli revealed to his companions. In the battle cry which he uttered in the siege of the Hornburg. That, at least, was not secret, and had been heard on many a field since the world was young. Baruch Kazad, Kazad i menu Axes of the dwarves, the dwarves are upon you. Gimli's own name, however, and the names of all his kin are of northern mannish origin, their own secret and inner names, their true names, the dwarves have never revealed to anyone of alien race, not even on their tombs do they inscribe them. So that's actually a super interesting detail that Rings of Power incorporated. There's that conversation that Elrond and Prince Durin have. I think it's it's in like um I don't know like episode 6 or 7 or something. It's near it's closer to the end of the first season. They like pause for a minute when they're trying to <laughs> break into the Mithril mine, you know, whatever moving past that. And Durin tells Elrond about this that there are names that the dwarves have among each other that are like their their dwarven names. And that is something sacred to them that they protect. And he was moments of what he was ready to tell Elrond his name because he was like, I don't know how this is going to go. If we can't find Mithril, we can't save the elves. Again, we're moving past that plot point. But just I, I really like that they took that detail That is so important to the dwarves, and they incorporated it into the show. The show writers really, like, say what you will about everything else, but they really paid attention to the dwarves. They wrote the dwarves with a lot of love and attention. It is making me way more excited to see the rest of Rings of Power because I think the writers understand the dwarves, and I think they're really doing them justice in a way that we haven't seen them done before. Okay, so that concludes part one of Appendix X. That is just about the languages of these peoples. The second part is on the translation. So here's what we're going to do, because I'm already, as I'm recording this, I'm already at an hour, and the translation is another five pages. It's going to take me another hour just to read this out loud and give commentary. And also, the translation part sounds like it's going to confuse me. So what we're going to do, I'm going to pause this here and I am going to read the translation section and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to sum it up for you because I think the interesting part for me of this appendix was what we just read, was about all the different languages of the races and how they came to be and the influences and the translation is just going to confuse me. So I'll do the hard work and then I'll come right back. But of course for you, no time will have passed at all. And I am back And it was as I predicted, I was very confused as I was reading that translation section. Um, So you don't have to bother with it. (laughs) Um, It's it's just, you know, one last final extensive way of Tolkien providing these, you you know, quote unquote, like, in-universe explanations for, like, why things are a certain way to make it really feel like Lord of the Rings as a whole is a real existing uh, fairy tale that has been like passed from person to person rather than like, hi, I'm J.R.R. Tolkien and I'm the author of Lord of the Rings. So if you're really curious and you really want to know everything, there's a whole lot in here actually about the hobbits specifically, um, about like Gamgee and the Bucklanders and a, b- a bunch of other like really detailed stuff about the hobbits. So if that's your bread and butter, maybe check it out. I'll summarize. I'll read a couple points that I thought were the most interesting. In presenting the matter of the Red Book as a history for people of today to read, the whole of the linguistic setting has been translated as far as possible into terms of our own times. Only the languages alien to the common speech have been left in their original form. But these appear mainly in the names of persons and places. So that's something I think we all could have guessed that, oh, okay, the way that all of these different uh, languages and different like tongues spoken by different characters and peoples, the way it's all been cohesively put together into this narrative is that it's been translated into, quote unquote, our language um, rather than, you know, obviously it was originally written like this because Tolkien spoke this language. <laughs> um, and then, again, we also probably could have guessed that the the made-up words, like names and places, are the things that he couldn't translate into English, and so that's why they have these more, um, you know, fantasy-sounding names. One thing that I found interesting is that the black speech and orcs and troll languages, actually was a lot more filthy. He he says their language was actually more degraded and filthy than I have shown it. So he kind of um like toned it down and censored it when he was translating it for us. And he also says trolls and orcs spoke as they would without love of words or things. And for a linguist like Tolkien who loves words, like that's just another way of showing that like, hey, these are the bad guys, these are the monsters. They don't even like words. Disgusting. Get them as far away from me as possible. Another thing that he explains is that everything is translated like from the perspective of of the Hobbit, like in the perspective of the Hobbit, if that makes any sense. Um, So, for example, rather than putting if he if he were to use the word Imladris instead of Rivendell that would kind of be like us saying Camelot instead of whatever Camelot is now. <laughs> um, so Rivendell is like what they call it, is like what the hobbits use colloquially. That's a great word. Um, so that, that that's like another way he decided to, to write things the way he did. Um, another thing he talks about is why um, like Frodo and... Aragorn and Gandalf all kind like they all speak the common tongue, you know, but they all speak a little bit differently. And it just comes down to um like education, the culture in which they grew up in, like what they what they know and the influences that they would have had on them as they are learning to speak, which again is something that I don't think he needed to explain because I think that's very apparent in like our everyday life, especially as an American, where if you come to the United States, you know, English is the primary language, but there's a million different ways that people speak English just in the United States, you know? So they all have different understandings of this language based on their backgrounds and their knowledge. And so therefore they're going to use it in their own way, you know? And that's kind of the the main points that I'll I'll share here. Again, if you want to get into the specific details of the translations, go for it. You know, you can go do that in your own time. Something that I just want to share that is just so chef's kiss, quintessentially J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I was looking up some stuff about Appendix F. Uh, to see if there were like interesting notes or anything about the translation thing. And the Tolkien Gateway entry on the language appendix says, Christopher concluded his discussion on the history of Appendix F by noting that even the copy sent to the printer contained many emendations. Am I looking up the word emendation? Yes, I am. Revision. Okay, there we go. Even the copy sent to the printer contained many revisions, and he believed that had his father not been facing severe space constraints, the form of Appendix F would have been considerably different. So he, Tolkien, this man, God bless him, he talked for, you know, six solid pages about translating a work into our language that didn't even happen you know like all this this whole idea of like translating the story of lord of the rings into english for us to read it that doesn't exist because he wrote it in english he didn't discover he didn't stumble upon this ancient tome (laughs) of lord of the rings and translate it painstakingly into english but it would have been even longer and more detailed if the printers or the publishers or whoever hadn't been like hey man we got to end this book. (laughs) Because keep in mind, this is the end of Appendix F, which is the last of the appendices. The story of Lord of the Rings ended 100 pages ago. And actually before that, technically, you know, like the climax of Lord of the Rings happens around page 900. The actual story, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King ends around page 1000. And then the appendices go to page 1100. The publishers were like, Bro, we gotta end it. <laughs> like we know you like this story, but it's time to wrap it up. We're running out of paper. There is a paper shortage because we're printing your books. Um, I'm sure that's not actually the case. No one come for me. Okay, so that was fun. Thanks for hanging out with me as I experienced that for the first time. Um, and you also got a really great look inside my head. Uh, what it's like when I. Am reading this and taking notes and preparing for the episodes when I do have guests on. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you skipped it, then you're not listening to this part, so it doesn't matter. But you know, I get it. Um, we're we're deep into the appendices again. I I didn't think I would ever do the appendices, but I also didn't think I would do the Silmarillion. Um I'm glad I came back around and did this, but I am, whew, I am ready to do some other stuff. I have some ideas for when I wanna do how I want to execute those ideas is a little more up in the air, but like I am excited to do some other stuff. And I just don't want to tell you guys in case that ends up not happening. Cause I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, set any expectations and then not be able to live up to it and disappoint you all because you guys are amazing. We've been here for three and a half years now, and we we really truthfully now can say that I have finished Lord of the Rings. I've finished the books, I've finished The Hobbit, and I finished the Silmarillion. That's pretty impressive. Um, there's a couple short works of Tolkien's that I would like to cover, but I will not be covering any of the history of Middle Earth, the children of Huron, just not not for me. The the Silmarillion well and truly broke me. So we're just gonna do fun things from now on. That's what I'm talking about as a proud member of WBNE, If you want to learn more about the network, you can go to WBNE.org. The cover art is by Vaishon Brandon. You can support him on Instagram at Vaishon Designs. You can get merch for that's what I'm talking about by going to tpublic.com/slash user slash about pod. You can follow the podcast on social media at Tolkien About Pod. I've been uploading a lot more Instagram reels there lately because TikTok is just a useless app. Oh, my God. It The only good that TikTok is doing for me these days are the Pedro Pascal edits, truthfully. Anyway, point being, there's more Instagram reels going up on Instagram at Talking About TolkienAboutPod. Some of them I am not doing on TikTok. So if you like the dumb Lord of the Rings stuff that I do on TikTok, follow the Instagram account because there's more of that happening there as well. You can also follow me personally, again, like I said, on TikTok and Twitter at MCWhatsApp and on Instagram, at down for watt If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash TolkienAboutPod to explore the different tiers and perks that are available. I was so excited and thrilled to see. Again, like I said, we've been doing this for three and a half years. How are you guys not sick of me yet? It's so amazing that people continue to find the show and enjoy it. Like our newest sponsor, Sean. Sean, thank you so much for deciding to support the podcast. I hope you are enjoying it so far, if you've started all the way at the beginning and you're working your way up, in which case you probably won't hear this until like five years later. Um, But thank you so much for your support. By the way, Patreon says your last name is Johnson. I'm assuming you are not the Olympic gymnast, Sean Johnson. But just in case you are, oh my God, that's so amazing. That was like the first Olympics I remember getting really involved and into watching rather than just being like, what's this thing everyone's watching at the same time? Anyway, either way, thank you so much, Sean. And I think I'll end this episode with some recommendations of what I've been watching, reading, whatever, in case you want something to do. Obviously, I have been watching The Last of Us. What an amazing show. As I'm recording this, there is an hour until the next episode drops, so I'm looking forward to that emotional devastation. Recently, I read a book called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. It's very strange, but very, like, weirdly comforting. It's also a quick read. I I think I read it pretty quickly. Um, And I'm currently listening to, so I can't, maybe it ends really weirdly, but I'm like 75% of the way through it. I'm really enjoying it called Must Love Books by Shauna Robinson. So those are some book recommendations if you want them. Music. I've recently started listening to Rainbow Kitten Surprise, which was kind of always in the background on my like, Spotify radar where like sometimes one of their songs would play. And I never really looked into them until recently. And I thought that it was going to be like a girl pop punk band. And instead it's all these like indie folk dudes, but really enjoying it. And lastly, a game I've been playing that I'm really enjoying is Cozy Grove. It's like Animal Crossing, but with a story that you like slowly unlock and uncover, and it has like little quests that you do every day. So if you stopped playing Animal Crossing because you ran out of stuff to do, this game will kind of give you more of a guided play. But it's so cute and wholesome, and the music is relaxing. So that is what I do when I am not reading Jolkin' Rolkin' Rolkin' Tolkien. So that's what I've got for y'all. Go have an amazing week. Go do things that bring you joy. And don't apologize for it. And that's what I'm talking about.